us is it's the beginning of Lent, and that means it is 40 days uh, until Easter, which seems unreal. Um, I didn't realize Lent was started today until today, actually. Um, I, I, it it kind of crept up on me how fast it is. But as we know, Easter Sunday is a big day uh, in the evangelical Christian community. It is, I've called it before, like the Super Bowl of, of, if, of church, of Sundays for the American church. Statistically, people are more open to accept an invitation on Easter Sunday than on any other Sunday during the year. I, my, I don't know the reasoning behind it. My guess is because there is something... Our culture in America has been so, the church has been such a part of it, that going to church on Easter Sunday seems like the thing people ought to do. And so, as a general rule, more people will attend church on Easter Sunday than on any other Sunday of the year. And that is without any extra invitation or anything like that. People are just more likely to plan to go to church on Easter Sunday than on any other Sunday of the year. And we, we want to do all we can to take advantage of this receptivity to try to invite people to come be a part of our Easter service. Now, our goal in this isn't necessarily to have a, a big Sunday or to have a big number for church. I mean, I'm going to pray that we have a large number of people. But the number isn't so we can go on and say, well, look how many people we had in church. The numbers represent people. Right? We want a large crowd because we want a large number of people to get to, to gather with us, to get an opportunity to sing songs of praise to Jesus, to, to hear the gospel of Jesus proclaimed, and to be given an opportunity then to respond to that, to repent and believe and be saved by Jesus. So when we talk about inviting people or making a big push to invite people, it is always for the sake of of seeing the lost saved, to see the prodigal restored, to see captives set free, to see broken hearts healed, to see the spiritually dead raised to new life in Christ, and to see the saints sanctified. That's everything that we do in our inviting. So in the first part of our praying for Easter, I want to give you some specific ways to pray for our Easter service. One, pray for opportunities to invite people to church. Um, Looking for, looking at making some invitations that we can hand out and give to people. Uh, and I hope to, to get that set up and done. But even if we don't have that, just look for opportunities to say, hey, you don't go to church somewhere? Why don't you come and be a part of our service this Easter, April 9th? Come and, and join with us. Right? So pray that the opportunities would be there. Pray for the courage to take them. Pray for the courage to take advantage of every opportunity that we're given to invite people to church. There's a space on that page you see to write down names. Think of three to five people you want to invite for Easter Sunday. Write their names down. And then begin to pray for them every day for opportunities to invite them to church. Pray they would come to church. And then pray they would be saved on the Sunday when they come. Uh, pray those we invite will come. Pray those who come will come back. <laughs> pray those who come will come back. That they will see something here that's important to them. Something they see missing in their life. And they will 
want to be a part of what God is doing in our midst. Pray there will be more visitors in attendance than members. Now, that's a big prayer, right? Because for the last, I would say, I really haven't kept track how many years it's been. But in the last, I would say, at least five years, we have had a large number, of course, except for 2020, but we have had a large number on Easter Sunday. And and when you really looked at it, there were only three or four visitors in the church. By and large, the the number that was there, whether it was 100 or 115, they, they were people who if you were to ask them, they would say this is their church. There were only maybe three to five first-time visitors. And what we want is, I mean, we do want those who would call this their church home but don't attend, we want them to come. There's an awful lot of people in our community that don't go to church anywhere, and they would not say any church is their home, and we want to invite them in as well. Pray for visitors to feel welcomed in our church. Pray for believers to arrive Easter Sunday with a sense of expectation and excitement, uh, that they would be expecting Jesus to move. They would be excited about the opportunity to be there. Listen, our our attitude when we arrive, it speaks to the visitors. They see us and they make decisions about how important what we're doing is based upon what they see in us. So if, if we come in Easter Sunday... And we we feel like, gosh, we just have to be here. It's going to be visible. And it's going to communicate to them. Now, let me say, I have talked to people who have come to our church. And they have watched us worship. And they have said, I want what they have. That's what we want. We want them to come and see the way we worship, how excited we are, how much we expect our God to move in our hearts, and them to say something is missing in my life, and whatever they have is what's missing. Pray unbelievers would arrive with their hearts ready to receive Jesus. Right? That, that the Holy Spirit would already be dealing with them prior to coming in. Pray people would be aware of God's presence in our service. We We know we're not praying for God to be here. God's omnipresent. He's already here. He's always here. But there's a difference between mentally knowing God's here and that sort of an experience and awareness of God's presence. We we want people that gather in to be aware of the fact there's something here they can't find anywhere else. That there's something here they can't find at Disneyland. There's something here they can't find anywhere else. And it began to dawn on them that it's God. So pray this awareness of God's presence would lead believers to worship Jesus passionately. It would lead them to listen to the word attentively and respond to the word obediently. Pray it would cause unbelievers to recognize something missing in their life and begin to realize what's missing is Jesus. Pray everyone who gathers would have ears to hear and hearts to obey. Pray the Holy Spirit would work powerfully. In our services. Pray the Holy Spirit would guide Scott as he leads the singing and the musicians as they play. Pray the Holy Spirit would anoint me as I preach the word. And I would preach it with boldness and with clarity. Pray the Holy Spirit would use the word as a light to dispel darkness in people's minds. So they could see the glory of Christ. Pray the Holy Spirit would use the word like a sword to bring conviction. Pray the Holy Spirit would empower the word to be a hammer to knock down strongholds. People have erected so their thoughts could be brought captive The obedience of Christ. Pray the Holy Spirit would use the word like a fire to to purify 
And he would convict people of their sin, their lack of righteousness, and of the judgment to come. Right? Everything ultimately revolves around the work of God in the hearts and the minds of the people. But we pray for him to work in those ways. Pray for me as I prepare the message. Pray I would know what passage to preach. Uh, as of yet, I don't have a particular sermon that I have planned for Easter Sunday. I don't know where we'll be in Mark, whether I'll just pick up where we are or whether I'm going to find something specific. I know I'm going to preach about Jesus, but outside of that, I don't know. Pray I would have what God wants me to have. Pray as I study, I would have a proper understanding of the passage and I would have a clear idea of what God wants to say through the passage. Pray for liberty during the invitation for people to feel free to respond to Jesus. There is... That that is really important. We are going to give an opportunity for people to come forward, repent of their sins, believe in Jesus, call upon Him to save them. But it is it is easy for there to be sort of a, a bound up and people not feel the liberty to come forward. And so pray that nothing like that would happen and people would feel liberty to come. Pray marriages and families would be strengthened and restored. Right? I mean... We all want strong families. People in our community, even unbelievers, want strong families. Well, there's nothing that makes a family stronger than a mutual commitment to Christ. And so pray that would happen. Pray for those whose marriages may be struggling, that they would come in and there would be this mutual surrender to Christ and it would restore their marriage. Pray for the lost to be saved, the prodigals to be restored, the captives to be set free, broken hearts to be healed, and the spiritually dead raised to new life in Christ. Pray God would work in such mighty ways, everyone who attends uh, would be changed from glory to glory. Pray for specific deliverance from, from bondages that we know are common in our community. Whether it would be alcoholism or drug addiction or sexual addictions or any other form of immorality common in the lives of the people. Many people in our community are absolutely in bondage to something. And Jesus came to set them free. And He can set them free from whatever they're bound up by. So if there's somebody you're inviting that you know they're bound by something, pray specifically that Jesus would work and set them free from that particular bondage. Pray God would use our church to plunder hell in order to populate heaven. And then consider fasting at least one day a week between now and Easter for the Easter service. So what I want to do now is have a time to, to pray. Uh, and if you know the people you want to invite to church, pray for them by name. Uh, otherwise, pray in this time for God to, to lay people on your heart and mind. Pick three or four of the requests and, and pray for them. And if you want to come to the altar, you can. And when we're finished, we're all through, we'll, we'll move on with the service.
What I want to spend the rest of our time in service doing tonight is explaining why this is so important. Now, nothing I'm about to say is going to be new information for anyone that's been here. Um, but I, I want these, these facts that we're going to talk about to always be on the forefront of our minds and weighing on our hearts as we begin to invite people for Easter Sunday. Uh, this is, these reasons that we're going to talk about are, are the reasons Easter is so important. It's the reason it's so important for us to take advantage of people's natural inclination and openness to come to church. Right? First is, every unbeliever is under the wrath of God. Right? Jesus said in John 3.18, The one who believes in Him is not judged, but the one who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And then the gospel writer John takes Jesus' words in 3.18 and he, he further interprets them and writes down, The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God remains upon him. Now, it's clear what is being said. Those who believe in Jesus, they, they have everlasting life. Those who do not believe in Jesus, not only will they not see life, but the wrath of God actively continually abides on them. Now, this picture of the wrath of God abiding on them is one we should not get out of our minds. We should let that be on the forefront of our minds all of the time. It should be something we are aware of on a constant basis. Right? The wrath of God, it, it just sort of literally hovers over the head of every unbeliever everywhere. And it's waiting on the command from God to fall on them, and to usher them into judgment. Now, if we were to use imagery from Jonathan Edwards in his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, we would say that every unbeliever is dangling over the fires of hell. And they're being held over the fires by a spiderweb thin string. And this thin string could break at any moment, sending them into eternal damnation. But worse yet, not only could that string break at some point, it assuredly will break at some point. There will be a time in the future in which God has had enough of that person's rejection, that person's rebellion, and that string will snap. Nothing can protect against that. Nothing can stop it. And when it happens, they will go into eternal damnation. Every unbeliever in the world at any moment could be brought into judgment by God. And every unbeliever in the world at some point will be brought into judgment by God. Now, this is true no matter how they feel about their lives. Many unbelievers are very satisfied with themselves. They feel they are morally okay. They're, they're happy with themselves as they are. They, they don't see they need God. They don't see they're rebel, rebels against God. But their opinion of themselves does not matter. The only opinion of them that matters, it's not mine, not yours. It is God's Himself. And that is what God Himself has said about them. And so no matter how satisfied they are with their life, how comfortable they are with their life, how, how complacent or okay they are, they are living under the fierce wrath of God. And unless they repent of their sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, they will face the severe judgment of God. 
That's a certainty. So there's an urgency that we should feel on their behalf. Secondly, every unbeliever must be born again. Familiar passage, it was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus at night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do the signs you do unless God is with him. Jesus responded and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God. Now, as Nicodemus comes to Jesus to get some answers about the things Jesus is doing, Jesus gets right to the heart of what Nicodemus needs to know. You must be born again. Now, for Nicodemus, to be told he must be born again to be a part of the kingdom of God would have come as a shock to him. The phrase kingdom of God had a very significant meaning to the Jews. It was commonly believed and taught and understood that a Jew, by virtue of being a Jew, was a part of the kingdom of God. That so long as they sort of even gave a nominal acceptance and a nominal commitment to God and to the law and to the sacrifices, that they were good to go. And what Jesus tells Nicodemus is that is not so. No one enters the kingdom of God without being born again. Now, in our day, we don't often think in terms of the kingdom of God. Typically, we think more in terms of being saved or going to heaven or in the context of what I just shared of escaping the wrath of God. The reality is what Jesus is saying to us is no one goes to heaven unless they're born again. No one is saved unless they're born again. No one escapes the terrible wrath and judgment of God without being born again. The reason I I like to use this passage to talk about this is because of what we know about Nicodemus and what it teaches us about the the, the absolute necessity of being the need to be born again. We learn from Nicodemus, for example, that being religious doesn't save. Nicodemus was a very religious person. He was as religious as a person could possibly be. He was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were an exclusive club. There were only about 6,000 of them at any one time in the world. To become a Pharisee, you had to take a pledge in front of three witnesses to devote your life to observing every detail of the scribal law And the traditions of the elders. They fasted from food and water twice a week, every week. They tithed the smallest amount of their income, no matter how small it was or how much it was. And yet, no matter how religious Nicodemus was, Jesus still led the conversation off by saying, you must be born again. Now, something with Nicodemus that I think is really important for us to see is Nicodemus is not religious in the wrong religion. Right? Nicodemus is not a devout religious follower of Baal. Nicodemus is not a devout religious follower of Zeus. Nicodemus is a devout religious follower of Judaism. The religion that, that God instituted through Abraham thousands of years before. Uh, think about that. I mean, to me, that's a, that's a strong statement. He, he went to the right church. He would have affirmed the right doctrines. And yet he was still told, you must be born again. If you talk to people about being saved or about heaven or eternity or whatever way we might use to describe it, we'll often get a lot of different answers. Well, I go to church. Well, I've been baptized. Well, I'm a member. I may not attend much, but I'm a member of this particular church. I'm a spiritual person. And what they're all saying without saying it is, in my own way, I'm religious. 
But as we learned with Nicodemus, the problem with that is being religious does not save. You must be born again. We also learned from Nicodemus that being moral doesn't save. As a Pharisee, Nicodemus was a very moral person. That was a natural outflow of his religion and his commitment to the religion. He would have been a good husband. He would have been a good father. He would have been a good neighbor. He helped the poor. He did all of those things. Anything that you can think of to describe what a good moral person, a good neighbor, a good person ought to be would have fit Nicodemus. And yet, despite his good morals, Jesus told him he must be born again. And we all know good moral people. They're good neighbors. They pay their taxes. They're good parents. They're faithful to their spouses. They, they may even be generous. They, they work hard on their jobs. They're just all around, salt of the earth, good kind of people. They've never really sown any wild oats. They've never really done a lot of the things that other people have done. Very often the problem with those sorts of folks is they don't see a need for Jesus and the salvation he offers. They are satisfied with themselves just the way they are. As far as they're concerned, they are every bit as good as the church people they know. They don't see any problems with their life or any reason why they would need Jesus and the salvation he died to provide. And while being moral is good, we certainly need more moral people in our world. Being moral does not save. You must be born again. Also, we learn from Nicodemus that knowing God's word doesn't save. In later verses, verse 10, Jesus will call Nicodemus a teacher of the law. Now, that's not just a saying. That's a significant title given to a few people in that day. There were serious qualifications before one could be allowed to teach God's word in one of the synagogues. As a Pharisee, Nicodemus would have had to have memorized the first five books of the Bible. The, the whole book, like in order. He had to memorize, be able to specifically quote Genesis to the end of Deuteronomy without missing a beat. He, he had to have been discipled by a teacher. He had to have been given opportunities to teach. He would have been super knowledgeable of God's word. He, Nicodemus and the Pharisees like him were the religious scholars of the day. And despite all he knew about God's word, Jesus still told him, you must be born again. Many people who have been raised in church or in Sunday school, went to Christian schools. They have all kinds of Bible knowledge. They can name the books of the Bible in order. They know the Ten Commandments and they can answer doctrinal questions. And it's good for them to know what the Bible says. But Bible knowledge does not save. You must be born again. We invite, because every unbeliever is under the wrath of God. We invite because every unbeliever must be born again. And we invite because only Jesus can save. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved. 
come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. There is only one God and there is only one mediator between God and people, and that is Christ Jesus. Now the point in part with this is God wants all people to be saved. He he wants all people to come to the knowledge of the truth. But notice also, it's not just that God wants all people to save, so all people are saved. God wants all people to be saved, but the only way they will be saved is to come through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only path from us to God. That there are not multiple paths and multiple ways. There are not multiple options. Door A, B, or C. There is just Jesus. The way, the truth, the life, the door, the shepherd for the sheep. He's it. Anyone who wants to know God can through Jesus. Anyone who wants to escape the wrath of God to come can through Jesus. Anyone who wants to be born again can through Jesus. Everything rises and falls on Jesus. Now, this is this is really where the we get to the crux of the, the problem. And this isn't in my notes. This is kind of a rabbit trail. But in one of the gospel accounts, in Matthew's account, he tells a story of, of a wedding feast. And, and, and the guy goes to prepare a feast and he invites the people that had said they would come and they wouldn't come. They all began to make excuses. And so they weren't allowed to come. And so he sends his servants out to the the highways and the hedges and to compel people to come in. And they filled the house up. And as they were going through the party, they found one guy who didn't have on the proper wedding garments. And he asked him, why aren't you wearing the wedding garments that I provided? And the man was speechless. He didn't have an answer. The Bible says that he was going to be bound hand and foot, cast into outer darkness where there'd be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now that one guy, what he represents is people who wants everything God offers, but they don't want to come in the way God demands. He wanted to be a part of the wedding feast. He wanted to be a part of the celebration. He wanted the food and all of the things that the master was offering, but he didn't want the master's clothing. He didn't want to do it the way the master said. And our world, our community is filled with people who want to know God. They want to be born again. They want to escape the judgment to come. But they don't want to come through Jesus. They want to do it on their terms, in their way, according to their demands. And that is always the path to damnation. There is no salvation in our own methods, in our own ideas, in our own ways. It is only found in Jesus. And anyone who wants to find their other way, they are that guy at the wedding feast, not wearing the wedding garments, and they will be bound hand and foot, tossed into outer darkness where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. People will not be saved through baptism. People will not be saved through church membership. People will not be saved by coming to an altar and kneeling and praying. People will only be saved through faith In Jesus Christ. None of those actions in and of themselves save. They're only valuable if they connect us to God through Jesus Christ. So we 
unashamedly invite people to church. And we fervently pray for their salvation. Because Jesus is the only hope they have for being saved. Only Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all. And so only Jesus can save. So we're going to take a few more minutes to pray about these things. And we ask God to drive these truths home to our hearts. Again, I know we all know these things. But we want God to make these things fresh in our hearts, fresh in our minds. We want Him to give us a deep conviction that all, par- all people apart from Jesus are condemned. We want God to give us a fresh conviction of how desperately people need Jesus. And we want to pray for God to give us many opportunities to tell people about Jesus. So again, if you want to come to the altars to pray, you can. Or you can pray where you are. We just want to ask everyone to pray at this time. One of my heroes of the faith is an evangelist named D.L. Moody. Moody was a really just sort of a wildly successful evangelist. Um, He started a church in Chicago that still exists. He started a Bible college that's now Moody Moody University or Moody Seminary. He's part of one of the first publishing presses for Christian books in America. Um, Just 
really did a lot. But he wasn't educated. Moody had like a third, fourth, fifth, sixth grade education. And he was a shoe salesman. That when he won to Christ, he uh, just commit, he went all in. And he made a commitment. One of the things he made a commitment to was that he would share the gospel every day with somebody in a one-on-one environment. And so there were, there were stories of him waking up, starting awake at 11 o'clock at night, and running out into the streets of Chicago to find somebody on the street that he could share the gospel with because he had forgot to do it during the day. And then he, again, he was just really successful in his campaigns and one-on-one evangelism. And he really threw a lot of people into a loop because he wasn't educated. He hadn't gone to Princeton. He hadn't gone to any of the large seminaries. And he wasn't, from what I've understood, he wasn't a good speaker. He wasn't a good reader. I mean, and so people were somewhat baffled. They couldn't figure out why this uneducated shoe salesman was really far more successful than they were in, in winning souls. And, and so they, they went to him one day when he was somewhere in a hotel. And they gathered around him and they asked him in his hotel room and they said, Mr. Moody, we want to know why are you so successful at winning souls? So the story goes, he led them over to the window of his hotel room and he pointed out to the city park that his hotel room overlooked. And he said, what do you all see out there? And they just began to describe whatever people in the late 1800s did when they went to a city park. There were people walking their dogs, playing frisbee, catch, whatever. And they said, well, what do you see, Mr. Moody? And with tears in his eyes, Moody replied, I see souls, precious souls, who will spend eternity in hell apart from Jesus Christ. Moody was successful not because he was eloquent and not because he was a good speaker. Moody was successful because all of those truths were burned deep into his heart and he knew Jesus was the only hope any of those people had. May God give us grace to see every person we encounter as a soul, a precious soul, who will spend eternity in hell apart from Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we love you today. You're great and awesome. You're worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. We pray for our Easter service today, Father. Lord, we pray that we would have, Lord, just the largest crowd we've ever had. Not... Not for our glory, not so that we could say, look how many we had. But because those crowd, those people represent souls who need Jesus. Give us many first time visitors on that day. People from our community who who we invite. Let us invite people and let those people come. Let that be the day of salvation for them. Work in that day. Restore marriages. Work in that day and save the lost. Work in that day and bring prodigals back to you. Work in that day and set captives free and raise the spiritually dead to new life in Christ. Father, begin to work in our hearts and help us to see everyone we encounter as souls, precious souls who will spend eternity in hell apart from Jesus. Let our hearts ache and our eyes leak because of that reality. Give us opportunities in the coming 40 days to invite many people to church. And when those opportunities arise, give us the courage to take advantage of it and to invite them. And again, bring them in. 
And most importantly, bring them to Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.